like to remind you that if you are experiencing symptoms of a heart attack, stroke, or any life-threatening medical emergency, please call 911. Please do not delay seeking treatment during the COVID-19 epidemic. Most Providence emergency rooms are open, and CDC-required safety measures are being taken to protect patients and hospital staff. If you are unsure of your symptoms, please use our telehealth services and speak with a healthcare professional that can better assess your symptoms and provide direction on the best course of action. Please do not let the worry of COVID-19 cause delay in seeking out treatment if you are experiencing a heart attack or stroke. Every minute treatment is delayed can be fatal. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the future of health on Dash Radio during this coronavirus pandemic. We're lucky to have many experts around our COVID-19 topic and many guest hosts. Remember to visit coronavirus.providence.org for more information. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Justin Crow, Vice President of Education Programs and Partnerships at Providence. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for information purposes only. If you have any medical questions, please reach out to your primary care or your health care professional. Let's begin. I want to start uh, by introducing our guest. So joining me for this live event is Dr. Frankie Lyons, who is the University of Providence Interim Executive Dean, and Evan Sylvester, who is the Regional Director of Infection Prevention at Swedish Medical Center. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So for today, just to provide a little bit of context, I think we've all seen that COVID-19 has really highlighted the vital importance of infection prevention and epidemiology in protecting our nation's health. And I think increasingly, we probably have a workforce or talent need in this area as well. And this is something that Swedish and Providence have really have a strength in. And we also have a university with a master's program in this area. So I wanted to have this conversation around uh, infection prevention and education and really the synergies between those. So why don't we just go ahead and jump in? Uh, so Frankie, let's start with you. I think it's important to clarify language first. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between an infection preventionist and an epidemiologist? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, primarily the differences are in their function and their level of education. Um, and so um, the background, though, in both cases are for an epidemiologist as well as an infection preventionist is a lot of public health. But typically, um, an infection preventionist would come from maybe nursing or lab, more practitioner focus, whereas an epidemiologist would more likely be a physician or a doctor in public health, um, physicians with a background, again, in public health. Their functions really could overlap. You may have an epidemiologist functioning as an IP and vice versa. But if you have okay. both roles represented, it's typically a difference in background. The general focus, though, of an infection preventionist is more on applied and educational types of activities, such as PPE, hand hygiene. Um, and they may conduct, actually, uh, infection preventionists may conduct your sur surveillance activities within an organization. Whereas um, the epidemiologist more likely would be focused on data analysis, research and interventions. And then, as we mentioned, the level of education is typically different. And there is geographical variances in the pay structure with epidemiologists generally being paid more highly. Okay. Evan, anything you would add to that? Uh, that's pretty spot on. Um... You know, the, the infection preventionist, also called the IP, uh, they do a lot of hands-on stuff. So if you're really interested in that kind of thing, uh, infection prevention is for you. 
Great, thank you. So Evan, the, the next question is for you. So obviously this year, infection prevention epidemiology has really become a household topic. Uh, and it's kind of witnessed, I, I say this jokingly, but the number of people casually highlighting terms like are not and really becoming armchair experts on how you stop transmission. So as a true expert in the field, tell us a little bit about your position at Swedish and then how your life has changed in the last five months as a result of COVID-19. Yeah, great question. Uh, so I'm the regional director of infection prevention at uh, Swedish Medical Center. Um, we have about five hospitals, a couple of standalone EDs and um, over 100 clinics. So uh, a lot of caregivers that we have, as well as a lot of patients that come and visit us. Um, over the last six months, uh, I had to adapt to getting a lot of questions and emails. <laughs> I think I've had over 13,000 emails that I've deleted in the last seven months, six months. Wow. Um, and they're still, you know, 1,300 behind. <laughs> uh, we've implemented so many new policies, um, constantly revising them, of course, which is challenging for the caregivers as well as me. It's, you know, I struggle to keep up with them, but it's because of all that changing science, the rate of the viral transmission, the state law, CDC recommendations, uh, that we're having to constantly change that and adapt to, you know, daily or, or weekly changes on it. You know, we focused so much early on for COVID and just put all of our energy into it. Um, a lot of our typical work uh, that we, we do through the hospital uh, just got put on the back burner. So we're trying to get back to that, you know, past work and, and uh, low level crisis mode. Okay. Yeah, you, you mentioned an interesting point, which is that as the science has changed, I mean, this has been a unique situation in that, you know, I think over the last five to six months, we've learned more about the virus, but that in some cases has resulted in, in different precautions that we would take. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it has. And it's challenging, too, because you have um, the World Health Organization, CDC, and then your local or uh, county state Department of Health um, that all have mixed guidance or, or uh, you know, uh, recommendations. So choosing which one that you, you want to follow and then all the new publications that are getting pushed out so quick without being peer reviewed really, you know, complicates things for us. Okay. So let's let's talk about your specific role at Swedish during the COVID-19 crisis. So obviously you're partnering with, with physicians, with nurses and care providers, but tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of a, a, a normal day, if you could say that, uh, during COVID-19. And did, you know, how did that role differ during this time period than maybe it would have before? Uh, during COVID, it was really phased. Um, early on, we partnered largely with the ED. So the emergency department staff um, and physicians, and then as well as the, the unit uh, nurses and managers on a few select uh, units that could handle COVID patients. And we, we focused on how they could stay safe, uh, wearing their you know, correct PPE, donning and doffing of Pappers and Cappers, those giant kind of Darth Vader helmets, um, as well as trying to manage supply uh, throughput uh, for those caregivers. And obviously there was a lot of fear and concern and were we doing the right thing based on the data at the time? Uh, so answering a lot of those questions and just reassuring those caregivers. And then as you know, the COVID cases slowly began to drop a little bit, and at least in our area, um, we started focusing more towards opening up our surgeries. So we, we then partnered with our, our surgeons and our anesthesiologists to make sure they could open up safely, um, especially with that asymptomatic transmission rate. So we had to come up with uh, strategies to make sure we could test the patients, get them in, get them isolated if they were positive, and if they needed an urgent emergent surgery, how do we proceed safely uh, for everybody? And then okay. we phased again to uh, our ambulatory side, 
uh, as we reopened our clinics, uh, that was uh, very, very challenging. So do you, when you think about COVID-19 and, and the future of infectious diseases, I mean, do you think this will increase demand for professionals that have a graduate degree in this area? Yeah, I mean, we've documented smallpox for, you know, uh, since 430 BC, uh, the plague has been going on for 200 plus years. And I think there's still some popping up now in Arizona uh, and other parts of the, the world, yellow fever, Spanish flu, um, Ebola, SARS, right? They continue to pop up and now we have COVID. Uh, so there's always these infectious diseases and maybe even more so now with all the domestic and international travel that we have. So you can be in one part of the country and the next day travel and transfer some pathogen to another part of the world that used to be completely remote. Um, with that and then climate change, you know, and deforestation, we have migrations and of different pathogens because of, of humans, you know, disrupting certain um, environments more so than we did in the past. So there's absolutely going to be a need for epidemiologists and infection preventionists in the future, and probably more so. Okay. Yeah, it's a great segue. So Frankie, tell us a little bit about the Master of Science in Infection Prevention and Epidemiology at the University of Providence. I, you know, I'm interested in kind of yeah. what's unique about the program. You know, is it online? Sure. How's it structured? Yes, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, this is a totally online asynchronous program developed for the working professional who wishes to transition into an infection and preventionist role. And there's foundational courses as well as applied courses. We have um, experts in the field. These are practitioners. Um, most of them or a lot of them are within Providence and Swedish and they um, are actually working with our students who are a lot of times are caregivers working a job such as you know, information um, technology or nursing or lab and they're um, wanting to train or transition. So a couple of unique things about our program are the cross-discipline peer instruction that occurs during the class through the chat feature as well as working with practitioner faculty. And also the idea that this is a cohort based model, which best, all best practices in education, you know, highlight the feature of a cohort, um, the, the peer support that you um, garner through your through your time within the program. It's also um, has been identified. Our program has been identified by APIC, which is the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. That's the professional organization that a lot of um, infection preventionists and epidemiologists belong to. And they have identified the, the program at UPROV as um, being a model program. So we feel really um, proud of this particular program because it was um, designed by infection preventionists within the system with input from education specialists. So we feel like it's a very um, timely, state-of-the-art, constantly monitored for um, quality and for being updated. We feel very proud to be able to offer this, this particular program, especially at this particular time in our health history. So thank you. No, that's great. And I'm sure it helps as well that, you know, we have a university that's connected to the health system so that you Absolutely. have a direct pathway potentially. And we do. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention, Justin, if I could in interject, that we do have special tuition rates for our caregivers within Providence. 
um, that come to us as students. And there's okay. also the opportunity for tuition reimbursement. Um, again, that's that's um, employer by employer or ministry by ministry based. But um, okay. there is that opportunity. Thank you. Well, that, that's helpful. So, um, Frankie, what you know, I'm interested, what background do you have to have to to pursue this program? I mean, do you have to be a nurse or a physician? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's really a great a great question, Justin, because anyone with a bachelor's degree and a desire to move into this field has the opportunity. There are some um, prerequisite courses, but anyone who has a bachelor's degree with a minimum GPA of a 3.0 or thereabouts, um, and then we the prerequisite courses, of course, are anatomy and physiology, and a microbiology course and a statistics course. So if you have okay. those elements, you qualify. A lot of our students do come from the clinical side, particularly nursing and lab. But our program is unique in that you do not have to be a nurse to apply to the program. Some programs are restricted only to nurses. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. So the next question is for, for both of you. Evan, I'll start with you. Um, you know, what advice would you give to people who are considering a career in this area, particularly at this time in, in our country's life? <laughs> it's uh, intense and uh, you won't get bored <laughs> right now. Uh, it's a great career. Um, you know, even before this uh, pre-COVID, I like to say, uh, every day it was something new. Uh, there's a good mix of office work, you know, doing your surveillance um, with some of the technology programs out there. Uh, data review. Um, then you can go up and uh, round on the floors, uh, do audits, talk with the nurses, the physicians, uh, do education, and go to the operating rooms and do rounding as well. Uh, and multidisciplinary rounding, so you get to learn from other specialties, which is even you know a, a great uh, part of that team. And then also there's a ton of educational opportunities, um, not just to teach others, but also for yourself to learn. Uh, you know, Frankie mentioned APIC. Uh, we sent a lot of our IPs uh, to APIC uh, conferences to get yearly education, uh, as well as a lot of the webinars that uh, the IPs attend, just because the, the science is always changing and there's better ways to do do things. Okay, that's helpful. Frankie, what about you? What advice would you have? Well, I, you know, I'm seeing that um, the current um, epidemic will only increase probably the opportunities within this profession. I see this as a growing profession, particularly as patient safety and as public demand for community safety expands. I think there will be probably um, regulatory tradition or regulatory changes that will uh, be tied to reimbursement as well. We already see that happening. I see it expanding across the spectrum of healthcare. Okay. That's great. So, um, Evan, when we, Swedish's mission is to improve the health and well-being of each person you serve, and one of your, your key values is safety. That's one of the things I think I've always admired about Swedish. So, tell me, just in your own words, how, how kind of the work you do in infection prevention, excuse me, infection prevention uniquely supports both that mission and that value. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, best quality and safety um, is, is one of our five best kind of um, uh, models where uh, IP focuses on the clinical excellence to prevent the hospital acquired infection. So the HAIs is what we call them. And our bread and butter are CLABSIs, uh, CADIs, C. diffs, and SSIs. And those are bloodstream infections, urine infections. Uh, C. difficile is a, a bacteria in the gut. 
And then SSI is our surgical site infection. So that's our bread and butter. And, you know, the prevalence of, you know, taking SSI, uh, it's one of the most common healthcare associated infections in the country, um, costing $3.3 billion a year uh, for our nation. Uh, so plus all, you know, the 31% of our HAIs are caused from them. So a lot of harm to our patients. So we focus a lot on uh, SSIs and CLABCs um, and that preventable harm. Um, you know, as, as a nation too, uh, for CLABCs, since 2008 to 2016, there's been a 50% reduction. Um, and it's because of the infection prevention measures at each hospital um, that they've worked hard to, to implement. So we, okay. we definitely have an impact and we're seeing it you know, on a larger scale now. Well, that's really impressive. I, I worked in nursing for a period of time, not as a nurse, but as an administrator. And I think, you know, seeing the impact of the work that you do in infection prevention is amazing, truly in, in live saved and, you know, the how you can better support, support the community. So that's I think that's really helpful for folks to understand. Evan, another question for you. Um, have you had any IP staff come from the University of Providence program? And if so, what was your experience? Yeah, we had one come. Um about a year and a half ago uh, from the Providence um, University and they did the uh, IP program and uh, that individual hit the ground running and very little training was required uh, to get her up to speed. Uh, she excelled very fast um, with everything and it was just amazing. And, and um, for all of our new new hires, we always try to reach out to Prov University and um, there was another one this year that we tried to, to grab, but uh, they went to another Providence ministry <laughs> before we could get them at Swedish. That's good that there's competition there, <laughs> at least for the candidates, the yes. applicants. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Um, so I'm gonna also intersperse some questions that come through from our audience. So uh, we have a question from a Facebook audience member. What kind of jobs are out there in workforce uh, for infection prevention? Uh, and then, you know, is it a growing field overall? So, you know, as you as you answer that, is it is it just in hospitals? Is it ambulatory? Is it in kind of home health, the continuum of care? Yeah, so a lot of the government requirements, CMS um, uh, and federal mandates are requiring that um, even on the ambulatory side or skilled nursing homes that they now have to have an infection preventionist um, contracted at least to help maintain, you know, patient safety and uh you know prevent infections uh so it's definitely growing um more so mm -hmm. i would i would see and then obviously during covid people are realizing the benefit and the need if they didn't already have their ips uh to get some okay frankie anything you would add to that no i agree totally with with those trends that seems to be what we're seeing and hearing from our student graduates okay so Frankie, a question for you, you know, one of the challenges that I think students face post COVID-19 is that the job market has really changed. Um, so obviously healthcare and tech are still strong, whereas other industries, some industries have completely collapsed. Um, mm -hmm. So UP is a strong focus on health sciences, including this program. You know, how do, how do you see students prepared for graduation? And, and maybe another way of saying it is when they graduate from this program, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, does it, do they have jobs out there? I mean, do they feel confident that they're prepared um, to go out and, and be able to support their families and make a, a difference for their communities? Well, I, I would point back to the, the great shout out, you know, that we heard here um, of our previous graduate that, that's employed and hit the ground running, so to speak. That's exactly 
um, the kind of testimonial we wish to hear. So thank you for that, Evan. What we try to build within the program is a um, functioning professional who can be both educational and um, applied in nature, their, their skill set. So we do offer the opportunity for a proctored um, or a precepted internship over the final three courses. So students work on an actual live project within the healthcare system. The nice thing, um, the nice additional benefit is the connection with other caregivers and across ministries. So there is that opportunity for if there's not a um, job opening at your ministry for there to be connections across all of Providence to, to at least um, have that opportunity to step into a role. So I think the applied nature, the actual skill set that they have an opportunity to put in place during that internship, as well as the networking are, are three great benefits. Okay, that's helpful. You know, one another question from kind of the audience is, in, in, and I want to be careful about answering this, but without kind of talking about Providence or Swedish pay bands, but do you, can you provide a, a general sense of like, what is the pay range for an, an, someone who comes out with a master's of infection prevention? Evan, I'll start with you. I don't know if you know kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, on States. average, what I have seen for the, the U.S. Uh, is anywhere between sixty and one hundred thirty thousand dollars okay. for uh, salary. Yeah. So it's a well compensated role. Yeah. Frankie, have you seen anything different? Um, I was. Those are the figures that match my notes as well, and it's geographically um, influenced. So you know, working in a rural hospital in Montana would be very different than a Portland or Seattle-based ministry. Okay. You, you bring up a good point, Frankie, which is that this is, and I think you mentioned this before, Evan, you know, this is a role that's that's required everywhere. You know, it, it's not just being in a tertiary hospital in a large metropolitan area. Like you, you also need it in, in rural hospitals as well. Is that is that true? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple of friends that are the infection prevention managers or directors, and they wear two hats. So they may also be the lab manager or quality manager as well in some of those okay. smaller areas. And I would also add the long-term care centers, Justin. As you know, this COVID epidemic or pandemic has really demonstrated that vulnerability for our elderly population in long-term care. So, um, you know, for folks who have that leaning as well, it's a, a high demand area. Okay. Now, that's a really good call, Adam. And I think we've seen some of the challenges in different states around um, infections within, and deaths within long-term care centers, which is really sad. So this is, this is a role where you can actually make a strong impact in different areas. So Frankie, as we, we've, we've had uh, some questions from the audience. We had some initial ones. Anything else that you would highlight overall that we didn't discuss around the importance of this program or this role? You know, I don't know what the future will hold, but even as we're having this conversation, I'm wondering if there will be an expansion of the role, um, maybe to within um, higher education, to have an infection prevention as focus just on any kind of mass gathering, higher ed, um, K-12. Um, I don't know what the future is, but I'm thinking that going forward, there's a lot, there will be a lot of um, new focus on the role of an infection preventionist um, as a community health member. And the other thing I would, I would note is um, it's a great time to consider healthcare 
as a career, um, just seeing the the um, persistence, I would say, of healthcare and the, the growing need um, across all populations. Mm -hmm. It's a really good point. I, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I think all universities and schools, uh, secondary mm -hmm. and primary schools as well, are trying to think through how do they reopen? You know, what's safe? Yeah. Like how much in-person interaction can you have? That, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. Evan, any, anything else that you would highlight, either following up on what Frankie said around education or more broadly within the profession? I mean, you mentioned a few times um, with just the impact, you know, kind of was the theme word that I kept hearing. And it is very true um, that there is a big impact on infection preventionists at hospitals. And you get to see that hard, you know, work pay off because you see the graphs, the data turning down and you see you know, the lives saved um, out there at the hospitals. So it, it's very impactful and rewarding. Um, and it makes the job very interesting, I think, to really work towards something and see that uh, that difference that you make, you know, in your community. Oh, that's that makes that's great. That's really good to hear. And one one final question for you for for both of you. So as you you know, let's say a person decides to pursue this, they get their education, you know, they move on to, to Swedish or Providence or an affiliate, you know, what what organizations exist more broadly for infection preventionists? Like, is, is there a network across the United States for continuing education and, and for sort of collaboration? Justin, I would say that APIC organization, it, it's 15,000 members strong. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I, I think that's the, Evan probably knows more, um, more than yeah. I, but but that's the one I'm aware of. And I was not aware of the huge membership, but I've, I visited their website a bit preparing for this session. And there's all kinds of um, <laughs> educational opportunities for anyone interested. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, very um, broad membership. Sorry. They have a yeah, you're right, Frankie. They 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 have a broad membership and they have local chapters typically in larger city areas. Um, like there's a Portland chapter, Seattle, you know, area chapter. Um, within the state and they meet monthly or they did pre-COVID anyway. Um, and they have uh, lectures and educational events. So they, they have a really good uh, membership um, out there. there. There's also one in Canada that I know of that has great materials for online resources. Um, and there's study groups that are ran through the, the APIC. So you have to get certified as well once you become an IP typically, uh, depending on where you work. Uh, so there's a, a national exam that you take. And then, you know, you don't just stop there. You can get a, another certification uh, once you start publishing and doing more research, the FAPIC membership, which is a fellow of infection mm. prevention. Uh, so it's a little bit higher status and takes more years in education to get there, but something else to look forward to after this first step. Okay. They also have the um, annual conference, I think in June typically, yep. which is yep. a great time where vendors and you know, prof working professionals and students all come together. Yeah. Um, it was, it was of course canceled this year, but that's another avenue. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Thank you. Well, I think we're we're almost out of time for today. So I, I just want to thank both of you for joining today. Uh, it was really great to have a conversation with you. I want to thank everyone for listening and sending in your questions. And to learn more about initiatives and programs and services and ways to give, or if you're looking for help or medical advice, you can visit Providence.org. Uh, Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and then Providence Health System on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And similarly, you can also find out more information about Swedish by visiting Swedish.org, including if you're looking for uh, medical advice or medical care. 
And you can follow Swedish uh, on social media at Swedish on Twitter and then Swedish Medical Center on Facebook and LinkedIn. So thank all of you for, for coming on today and I hope you have a wonderful day.